Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tracy Bumgard and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, UN Women hail South Africa's new gender balance cabinet and concerns over worsening healthcare situation in Gaza. In economics news, Castel Malawi announces plan to retrench 300 workers. And in sports news, South Africa finished third in the World Sevens Rugby Series. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Troops and police are moving into an anti-government city outside Sudan's military headquarters in the capital, Khartoum. And eyewitness has described a chaotic situation, saying the ruling military council is using force to break up the long-running city. The Sudanese military ousted President Omar al-Bashir in April after months of protests over his 30 years in office. But protesters continue to camp outside the defense ministry, demanding that military rulers who replaced al-Bashir hand over power to civilians. The BBC's Julian Bedford reports. The troops moved in shortly after daybreak. There had been increased military activity in the area over the weekend, following a statement from the army that the sit-in was now seen as a threat to security. The SPA, the umbrella group that has been coordinating the protest, says at least one person has been killed. Some of the demonstrators have fled the area. Others are reported to have set fire to their barricades to fend off the security forces. The protests may have driven President Omar al-Bashir from office, but they have yet to force the army from power. Algeria's Constitutional Council has concluded it will not be possible to hold presidential elections on the 4th of next month as planned. It says it's impossible to hold elections to choose a successor to ousted President Abdulaziz Bouteflika after the only two candidates were rejected. It will now be up to the interim President Abdul Qadir Bansala to again convene the electoral body and to finalize the electoral process until a new leader is sworn in. At least 18 people have been injured in two car bomb explosions that targeted a military unit in Libya's eastern coastal city of Derna. Residents say the car bombs targeted a military unit called Bulahati, belonging to the eastern forces of the Libyan National Army in the city centre. Derna, once an extremist station, was declared to be under complete control of General Khalifa Haftar's al in in June last year. After the ouster of long-time ruler Muammar Gaddafi in 2011, militant groups Al-Qaeda and ISIS used Libya as a base for attacks, exploiting its chaos and lack of security. 
An Egyptian boat that rescued 75 migrants in international waters was blocked on Saturday evening off the Tunisian coast. Authorities claimed not to have the logistics to welcome the new migrants, according to the captain of the boat in a Tunisian NGO. The ship passed the boat with a broken engine on Friday morning, carrying 75 migrants. In the absence of rescue intervention as the weather deteriorated, the tug brought the migrants on board and headed for the port of Zassis in southern Tunisia. And finally, U.S. President Donald Trump says he's open to talks with the Mexican government but wants to take concrete actions to stop the flow of migrants into the United States. In April, Trump took a step back from completely closing the U.S. border with Mexico to fight illegal immigration after companies voiced concern that it would cause chaos for businesses. He still headstrong about building a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border and has reiterated threats of tariffs on Mexican goods. Speaking to reporters outside the White House, Trump said Mexico must, as he puts it, stop taking advantage of the United States. They have to stop the illegal flow, the flow of drugs, of immigrants, illegal immigrants, people that have not gone through the process. We have people, we want people to come into our country, but they have to come in legally. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It is 8... 05 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Now let's go back in time to today in 2016. Heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali died at a hospital in Scottsdale, Arizona at the age of 74. History 2016. Hi, I'm Pule Molebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, Monday, 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time, and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time, Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report. An enlightened narrative with me, Ule Mulebati, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. Company law experts say struggling state-owned South African enterprises will find more difficult to attract experienced executives on fears of trading under insolvent circumstances. This after South African Airways Board confirmed the resignation of the company CEO Vuyani Jahana. In a statement, the board chairman Johannes Magwaza accepted the resignation of Jahana and thanked him for his service and commitment to the airline. Jahana reportedly cited uncertainty about about funding and how slow decision-making processes were delaying the airline's turnaround strategy. According to company law experts, Professor Tsepo Mungalo, directors of companies that trade under insolvent circumstances can face criminal charges. Tsepo Mungai reports. I would say to all the heads of state, 
of Southern Africa. We need 50-50 cabinets. That was the challenge made by UN Women's Chief in March this year, ahead of a number of elections in the Southern Africa region. South Africa's struggling state-owned enterprises are sitting on the half-a-trillion rand debt. The main culprits include ESCOM, SAA, DINAL, SABC and SANRAL. Many state-owned enterprises continue to struggle despite having received billions of rent from government. The states usually assist these companies by issuing guarantees. However, when the time comes for payment, some state-owned enterprises fail to meet their obligation, forcing government to pay. Government has committed to a further 5 billion rent to SAA, which has outstanding guarantee amounting to 19 billion rent, a sign that the company is teetering on the edge of trading under insolvent circumstances. Experts have warned that failure of some SOEs could have a negative impact on the careers of some of the executives. Professor Tsepo Mongalu is a company law expert. The possibility that uh, the government is not coming forth with the funding that is required may be the main reason why he is very much concerned that the company is under danger of trading under insolvent circumstances. And until such time that the such commitment to fund uh, SOEs, particularly SAA, can be forthcoming, then the directors run the risk of trading under insolvent circumstances, which will be in, in contravention of the law and it may lead to criminal uh, allegations being leveled against the members of the board as it stands at the moment it would appear that that is the right thing to do if there's no funding coming Jahana sent his resignation letter to board chairperson johannes maguaza he cited liquidation issues and a failure by government to commit to a further financial assistance while the airline received a 5 billion rand cash injection from government last year, Jahana said a large portion of the bailout went towards debt. He was appointed CEO at the loss-making state-owned entity in 2017. SAA joins other state-owned enterprises like Ascom and Transnet that don't have a permanent CEO. Jahana's resignation comes hot on the heels of Ascom CEO Pagaman Khadeva's resignation last week. In the beginning of May, Trustnet CEO Daumore also resigned and was replaced by Mohamed Mohamedi as acting CEO. I am Tepo Mungwai in Johannesburg. The United Nations Secretary General and the Executive Director of UN Women have praised the decision by South Africa's President Sul Ramaphosa to appoint a gender-neutral cabinet. This makes South Africa the 11th country globally to meet this benchmark and just the third in Africa after Rwanda and Ethiopia. The President of the General Assembly also lauded the move as a decision that will benefit not only South Africa but the entire region. Show and Bryce Peace reports. I would say to all the heads of state of Southern Africa, we need 50-50 cabinets. That was the challenge made by UN Women's Chief in March this year, ahead of a number of elections in the Southern Africa region. Two and a half months later, widespread praise for President Ramaphosa's decision from Pumzele Mlambongluka. I'm very excited that South Africa now has a gender-balanced cabinet. I want to congratulate uh, the president and the cabinet and uh, to commit ourselves to support them and to work with them every step of the way. It's an exciting cabinet also because it's so diverse. 
there's new blood, younger people. We are excited that uh, we also have uh, strong people like Togo Didiza in a complex department. She is uh, formidable on agriculture. She understands the subject, but also land reform, which is a very complex issue in South Africa right now. Uh, now is going to be also in the hands of someone who really knows how to engage both communities in, at a very complex level. In the most recent UN Women Interparliamentary Union Women in Politics rankings, Spain leads with 64.7% women in cabinet, followed by Nicaragua and Sweden in the top three. Rwanda is the top-ranked African country at seven, with 51.9%, followed by Ethiopia and South Africa at 50% women in their respective cabinets. It's not just about the numbers, uh, obviously. We really, however, need the women to be at the table. Uh, because the men are not at the table because they are bringing something that women cannot bring. So if women are not in the table, it means that the team is weaker. Uh, you do not benefit from some of the strengths that women bring uh, uh, to the table. And there are issues that uh, you otherwise uh, uh, would be handling if you had women that slip away. In a tweet, UNSG Antonio Guterres called gender equality and women's leadership essential for peace and development, welcoming the decision for full parity. The president of the General Assembly also weighed in through spokesperson Monica Grayley. In a tweet, Ms. Maria Fernandez-Pinosa said that His Excellency President Cyril Ramaphosa's decision to appoint a cabinet with 50% of female ministers was a strong example of an inclusive leadership style which will bear fruits not only for South Africa but for the entire region. The PGA reiterates that the participation of women in decision-making processes, as well as in leadership roles, makes a real difference to societies, countries, and the world. UN women likely to work closely with a number of key portfolios in cabinet, in particular the women's minister in the presidency, Maitankwana Mashabane, and international relations minister, Naledi Pando. We congratulate uh, uh, Minister uh, of Women and uh, we welcome uh, Naledi. Uh, we are excited uh, uh, about Naledi. She has a very strong track record of delivery. Uh, it's nice that we also have diversity in the cabinet. We have a, a minister who's a Muslim. It's also a nice diversity globally that we bring from a country like South Africa, someone who lives in a a country that has different religions that live side by side uh, in harmony. She also will be, I think, a, a very good, uh, will give a very good presence uh, in the Security Council. In 2018, the UN Secretariat also achieved gender parity in both the senior management group and among resident coordinators around the world. I'm Sherman Bryce Pears in New York. The South African Parliament says National Assembly Speaker Tandi Mudise is seeking advice on how to best deal with a DA Chief Whip John Steenhuizen's request over the public protector because the structures of Parliament have not yet been established. The Rules Committee still has to meet this week to establish the Parliamentary Portfolio Committees in line with the reconfiguration of the ministries, Mercedes Percent reports. 
John Stian Hazen had written to Mudise a day after she was elected speaker, calling on her to institute a new investigation process into the fitness of public protector Busisuem Kwebani to hold office. He said this followed the latest judgment of the North Gauteng High Court, which set Kwebani's report into the Freda Dairy project aside. The DA chief whip said they were optimistic that the ANC wouldn't use its majority to block her removal as it was seen in the fifth parliament well i think there's a different parliament now there's a sixth parliament there's new office bearers and if the anc and the president particularly are as committed to clearing up and clearing out as they have said they are if the president is committed to transparency and accountability as he said in the house after his election by the national assembly as president then surely they can't sit on their hands for a moment longer while one of these key important institutions of democracy is so deeply compromised by an office holder who continues to embarrass the institution, who continues to be have her report set aside, and who continues to bring uh, questions of competence around that office. Parliament spokesperson Moloto Mutapo says the letter of request of Stian Hazen is receiving attention. The rules indicate that uh, as and when the speaker receives a request of this nature. She is obligated to refer it to the appropriate structure of the National Assembly for consideration. So as you know, quite a number of structures of Parliament have not been created yet. So the Speaker therefore is busy seeking an advice on how best to deal with the request of uh, the Democratic Alliance. A similar request was previously considered by the Justice and Correctional Services Committee in the Fifth Parliament. Motapo says the previous committee recommended to the National Assembly in February not to support the request to expedite proceedings to remove the public protector from office because such removal proceedings were premature. Meanwhile, the EFF differs from the DA about Mkwebani's fitness to hold office. The EFF says her work has improved and the party believes that she is fit to hold office. EFF Chief Whip Floyd Shibambu spoke on first take on SAFM a few days ago. We carry an obligation, all of us, all of us as South Africans, to protect and defend the office of the public protector because it can be politicians that instruct for the removal of a public protector on the basis of her findings, which are not even set aside by courts. They are avenues through which such a judgment can be set aside. But you can't just now rush to remove a public protector. What is going to happen to those who are going to succeed the public protector, the incumbent? They are going to be very scared of politicians that if I rule against this one, uh, this is going to be career limiting and, 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 mm. and they will then be scared. It will just dissolve the office altogether. So let me get clarity. 2017, you thought she wasn't fit for office and now you say there's been a marked improvement yes. in her performance. Yes. Is she now fit for office? She is. She is definitely fit for office and she's not going anywhere. And on Friday, Mkwebani told SABC News that she will complete a term of office. I'm not going anywhere. I'll be here until 2023 and if the process is taken through and there's a two-thirds majority to remove me uh, definitely i'll go i won't um, have a problem with that but for now to south africans i'm saving them as a public protector we've finalized more than 14,000 applications bread and butter issues issues which 
affects the people at the grassroots. The proceedings for the removal of a public protector from office are outlined in Chapter 9 of the Constitution under Section 194. These removal proceedings apply to all heads of Chapter 9 institutions, including the Auditor General. A public protector may be removed on grounds of misconduct, incapacity and incompetence if such findings have been made by a committee of the National Assembly and finally approved through a resolution by the Assembly of two-thirds of MPs in favor of the removal. If such an inquiry to investigate a public protector's fitness to hold office is conducted by the committee, the president may suspend the public protector after the committee has started proceedings to probe the fitness to hold office. If the National Assembly successfully passes a resolution to remove the public protector from office, then the president must remove the person from office. A two-thirds majority which is required means 66.6% of the National Assembly should support the removal of the incumbent from office. This means about 266 to 267 of the 400 MPs in the Assembly will have to support the removal of Mkwebane from office. That report by Mercedes percent in Cape Town. Join Channel Africa in English and Kiswahili when we bring you Gateway to Africa and Suraya Africa covering the WTA Grand Tour 2019. A search for the finest travel and tourism organizations in the world. The event is taking place on the 1st of June at Sugar Beach Spa and Resort on Mauritius. Other events will take place until the 3rd of June 2019. Irvind Brudem, Director, Mauritius Tourism Promotion Authority, said, Mauritius is indeed very proud and honored to host the World Travel Awards Africa and Indian Ocean Gala Ceremony 2019. Channel Africa, bringing you the African Perspective. Suffering from cancer or having a premature baby is traumatic wherever you live in the world. But patients in Gaza face a unique set of difficulties over health care. With a financial crisis and a deep rift between Hamas, which rules Gaza, and Fatah, which dominates the Palestinian Authority based in the West Bank, many drugs are in short supply. Treatments and travel are also restricted by the tight blockade imposed by Israel and Egypt. Often, a patient's best hope is to get a permit to go to one of the Palestinian hospitals in East Jerusalem from where the BBC's Middle East correspondent, Yolande Nell, reports. There's a crowd of cancer patients at the Augusta Victoria reception from early morning. Many come from Gaza and have had long hold-ups for potentially life-saving treatment. My treatment is going to take longer as my tumor grew because of the delay. The longer you wait, the scarier it gets with this disease. And yet these patients say they're lucky as they've reached East Jerusalem. Those aged 16 to 55 have gone through more thorough Israeli security checks. Now they're in the only Palestinian hospital where Israel allows radiation treatment. 
and it has the drugs they need. In Gaza, it's difficult. All they do is check you. You live, you die, that's it. The traveling is exhausting, but this is the only place to get treatment. Getting permits is hard unless you're in your 50s or 60s. Many younger people just have to stay in Gaza. Increasingly, hospitals in Gaza lack essential medicines, including for cancer. The territories run by Hamas, but a rival administration, the Palestinian Authority, is responsible for sending medical supplies. The PA also authorizes patients getting treated outside. Then the Israeli authorities decide who gets an exit permit. The bureaucracy for Gazans exasperates oncologist Dr. Yusuf Hamamra. They have to go through a very complicated process. That means two-thirds of them they are coming to us in very advanced stage, unfortunately. They need to have uh, permission to, to come from the Israeli side and also financial coverage from the Palestinian Minister of Health. And you know, sometimes here the politics, of course, will affect strongly the situation. And for support the patient, they need to come to my clinic within two weeks. They need at least two months. Upstairs in the children's ward, 13-year-old Mahmoud sings for his nurses while he's hooked up to a drip for his chemotherapy. The lyrics about homesickness are poignant. But for the first time in a year, Mahmoud does have his mum with him instead of an elderly grandparent. She's now got security clearance from Israel. It's much better having my mum with me, but I still hate being away from home. What difference would it make if you could have this treatment in Gaza, the chemo? I wish I could have treatment in Gaza because my father is there, my brothers and the whole family. And here in the neonatal ward at the Makassid Hospital, there are some tiny patients on their own. After the militant group Hamas took over Gaza more than a decade ago, Israel tightened its restrictions on people's movements, citing security concerns. The Israeli authorities say it's their policy for sick children to be accompanied by a parent, but that doesn't always happen. <coughs> Baby Shahed was born prematurely in January, the only survivor of triplets. She's now healthy, smiling at me in her cot. For over two months, she's been waiting to be taken home. Her mother was sent back to Gaza shortly after giving birth. This cash-strapped hospital had no place for her to stay. Dr. Amir Atauna worries about the impact. She saw her in person just at the age of three or four days when she was very sick in incubator on a ventilator machine. Yeah, and she left here like crying. We communicate with her by phone, sometimes with uh, social media. We send her videos and photos for Shahad. But this is not enough for sure. The most important thing for the mother is to be around her baby. When I watch, it's a nurse feeding Shahid. But later I'm told of a happy reunion. Her mother was finally able to collect her this week. The staff are delighted. Here at the East Jerusalem hospitals, they care for some of the most vulnerable Palestinian patients. Tough financial and political realities only adding to the serious conditions they're in.
That report by the BBC's Yolanda Linnell in Gaza. With the growing number of medical practitioners leaving the public health care sector for private practice, African governments are calling for public-private collaborations to help stem this exodus. The call was made at the Africa Health Exhibition and Conference held at Gallagher Estate in Midrand, north of Johannesburg, last week. The meeting was called to discuss critical issues facing the healthcare sector in Africa. Pearl Makubane was there. Many people in Africa still rely on their governments for the provision of health care. In Namibia, for instance, 85% of the people receive treatment from the state-owned facilities, and this puts a serious burden on the limited state resources. Now authorities want to introduce a co-share option, which they believe could help ease the burden. Namibia's Deputy Health Minister, Julieta Kavituna, says this will see private health care providers sharing spaces with their public counterparts. We have so many facilities that are actually very old, that are not good in, in, in terms of providing quality health care. Most of the, the, the money that we are using is going for uh, very specialized technologies. Maybe like we send people to private sectors uh, to, for CT scans. We, we do a dialysis within the private sectors. But when we have it in-house, whether it's provided by ourselves or the, uh, the partner that we want to bring on board, I think it will really impact positively to the outcomes and also to alleviate the number of people that are burdened, which is a burden to the state facility. In Uganda, one of the key challenges is retaining public sector workers from leaving for better paying jobs in the private sector. Minister of State for Primary Health Care in the country, Joyce Kadusu, says they're losing an increasing number of public sector personnel to the private sector. But the fact that most of the human Ghana has a different approach. Ghana's Deputy Health Minister, Alexander Kojo Aban, says everyone in the country is entitled to the same health care. The government acknowledges the ownership rights of these hospitals. But in terms of personnel who actually work in these uh, hospitals, uh, they are all trained in the public universities. And secondly, they are paid by the government so that when you go there, the service there and the service at the government hospitals are not uh, different. Wherever you are in the country, uh, the service is the same, uh, pricing the same, and indeed there is even a committee that deals with pricing of pharmaceutical products. The delegates say despite the challenges, they need to find ways to strengthen and increase collaboration between governments and the private sector. Paul Magubane, Johannesburg. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, there are multiple reports of gunfire at the protest site in the centre of the Sudanese capital, Khartoum. Algeria will not hold the presidential elections on the 4th of next month as planned. And President Donald Trump says he's open to talks with the Mexican government but wants to tackle concrete actions to stop the flow of migrants into the United States. Those are the stories making headlines. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Kenya avocado farmers are hoping to reap big benefits following the signing of an export trade deal between the East African nation and China. Kenya's agriculture ministry estimates that when the agreement fully takes effect, the Chinese market will buy more than 40% of Kenya's avocado produce. So, so good are the returns that in some areas, farmers are uprooting coffee bushes, replacing them with avocado trees. Sarah Kimani met one such farmer who says he has no regrets of replacing the black gold with what is turning out to be the green gold. Surrounded by tree seedlings and chirping birds, Elijah Gadua moves up and down his tree nursery in Gatondo, central Kenya. This Gadua's daily routine for 32 years now. From a one-man enterprise, he now employs nine permanent staff who help him to tend on the seedlings. Gatondo is traditionally a coffee-growing area, but Gadua, like many farmers here, opted to dump coffee due to its low returns for the more lucrative avocado business. The, the work put of coffee is so high. You have to tender that tree, you have to pick it, you have to spray, you have to get the... At the end of the day, we are not getting enough money. But with the avocado, this tree needs very minimal attendance. Kenya, currently the largest African avocado exporter, is eyeing even bigger returns after the East African nation signed a deal to export the food directly to China beginning this year. That and the growing Europe, Middle East and Southern African markets have seen aspiring avocado farmers flock to his nursery. Uh, there, the, there before, the market was not so good because it was, a, it was as if we were introducing to people to plant. But people, they were not uh, for it. But this time round, let's say for the last, the last three years, I would say this is gold now. It is gold. To remain a step ahead, he grafts two varieties. He says this has made his variety disease and pest resistant. At the same time, this fruit of hash, it can stay in the plant for about almost one year without falling. It elicits... This is even a drought than any other tree. 
Yeah. The was returns from the tree nurseries and the mature fruits now stand at just an estimated $6,000 every year. With millions of jobless African youth and 60% of the world's available arable land, the Dua says venturing into agriculture and especially tree planting could earn young people handsome returns. Not only avocado you can grow, start a tree nursery, any other type of, even flowers. We are building beautiful houses and we need to plant flowers, even grass, long grass. You can plant grass and when it is lean, people are looking for long grass. So agriculture pays? Yes. The pays. To give back to the community, he has donated 20 seedlings to schools neighboring his home, grooming the next crop of seedling farmers. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. U.S. President Donald Trump will end India's special trade status this week after the Asian country failed to provide the United States access to its markets. India has benefited from a scheme that has seen up to 5.6 billion U.S. dollars worth of goods enter the U.S. duty-free, but this will end on June the 5th. The move comes after Turkey's preferential status under the scheme was also ended last month as the U.S. administration aims to curb unfair trading relationships with other nations. Ranasen reports. Prime Minister Modi's market protectionist policies charmed voters at home but backfired in real life. Said opposition politician Randeep Surjewala as India's government seemed to go into shock. 16% of India's exports, our biggest exports among any country is to United States. India's exports will be consequently adversely hit, further causing a jobs crisis, for exports creates jobs. And India's flourishing software industry will be decimated without U.S. support, warned economist Jagdish Shetigar. All the IT sectors, 80% of their market depends on the U.S. Mm. and the Eurozone. Now when Eurozone and the U.S. has not been doing well, that obviously affect our market. But in addition to that, now there is a Donald Trump who has started approaching what he called the protectionist policies with his tough visa policies. Now he is insisting that the, all these IT majors should hire only the U.S. people. Market analyst Vinod Lakshman advised Modi not to gamble with India's tottering economy in his second term as well. Relying on trade, a highly fickle and dangerous game. So if they want to do that, they have to get back to the nuts and bolts of the domestic economy. They have to fix the unemployment problem. Where is that infrastructure investment in massive projects that was promised, that was supposed to create 1 million jobs a month, 10 million, at least 10 million jobs a year? That's the kind of mega push that will result in this economy going up to the next level. And if the Modi government wants to have a third term or be go look beyond that, they have to start playing the game at that level, not at this little level of you know tinkering with a few things. And now it will not be long before secrets that Modi buried will come to bite. Forecast economist Pranjoy Gothakurta. Why is the government concerned? Because agricultural production is down. It's in a very, very bad shape. Now, if you look at the first five years of the first Modi government, you see that the growth of crop output has hardly gone by 1% per year. You stop publishing the data of farmers committing suicide. But the fact is that we are seeing an agrarian crisis deepening. The weekend announcement came amidst growing trade tensions between the US and China. And so is India now just collateral damage? Diplomats are asking. This is Zana Sen reporting from New Delhi.
world that remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty, and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. According to statistics released by the Department of Environmental Affairs, Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Let's go back in time to today. In 1954, South Africa's richest gold deposit is discovered near the farm of FDL in the Orange Free State. That's today in history, 1954. The South African National Park Sandparks has called for harsher sentences for those found guilty of rhino poaching. Sandparks made the call at the Kruger National Park where it conducted a rhino dehorning program. The program is aimed at curbing rhino poaching. Vusi Twala reports. According to statistics released by the Department of Environmental Affairs, poaching activities in the country have declined over the past three years. Last year, 769 cases of rhino poaching were recorded. This indicates a 259 decrease compared to the 1,028 cases registered in 2017. In Sun Parks, there was a decline from 504 cases in 2017 to 422 in 2018, and the Kruger National Park remained the hardest hit. Amongst other rhino poaching strategies used by the Kruger National Park is dehorning. General Manager for Scientific Services, Danny Pinar, says dehorning has proved to be a successful deterrent. It's so important that we decided to start a dehorning program specifically on rhino cows to see if we can protect them more and that way limit the impact on the population of the poaching that we're having. We in fact also want to talk to the Justice Department to uh, see if we can't get harsher sentences for people that poach rhino cows. Because... Uh, uh, the impact is so, is so great. Manager for Veterinary Services in the Kruger National Park, Dr. Peter Bass, says the harvested horns are preserved. The horn then will get put into a, a vault and it gets uh, put, put away and stored. It's uh, identified and catalogued uh, according to CITES and deer requirements. The risk to the poacher increases because every time they shoot a rhino, there's a good chance they'll be heard and then the field rangers will find them. The dehorning process will be repeated every 18 to 24 months as the horn grows back naturally. I'm Vusi Twala for SAPC News in Bombela. Youngsters dominated the show at the 25th edition of the South African Music Awards on Saturday night at Sun City Resort in the Northwest Province. Newcomer Shoma Josi, Soshanguve House Music Group, Black Motion, as well as Java, walked away with two awards each. The Salmas celebrated their 25th year of existence. Music legends who were part of the annual extravaganza in its first years were also honored. Bafedile Morani reports. A special celebration in throwback style. The 25th edition of The Summers showcased the evolution of music in the country. It was all glitz and glamour 
as the husu in the music industry and music lovers from far and wide gathered under one roof to experience the 25th edition of this annual music extravaganza. Hundreds were nominated for different categories, but only a few ascended the stage to receive awards for their commendable dexterity. And the record of the year was scooped by the gospel group Joa Celebration under the best-selling digital artist and the sensational lady Zama for the song that got the highest number of airplay. Joya Celebration leader Jabutlawani and Lady Zama had this to say. This is the third one. Yesterday we got two. It's amazing. South Africans have been amazing. Thank you so much, guys. It's 23 years later and we are humbled by the support. I just want to say thank you to everybody in the recording industry. Thank you to every single radio station that has played my music. And thank you so much to all the Zamashans who continuously demand the song to be played last year. Thank you and I appreciate and love each and every one of you guys. From Afropop, traditional music, R&B, Kwaito, jazz, and with the new genres, I'm a piano. And gom, South African music is divine. And this year's Newcomer and Female of the Year awards were scooped by none other than Group were also honored with Lifetime Achievement Awards. South African music rocks, guys. I am Bafedile Moerani in the Northwest. Our economics update up next with Tracy Bloomgard. Thank you, Lulu. More than 1.4 million people who are on antiretroviral drugs in Zimbabwe are in danger of running out of the medication as the country's Reserve Bank allegedly refuses to release 6 million U.S. dollars required by the National AIDS Council for the procurement of the drug. Zimbabwe is facing a critical foreign currency shortage owing to a huge trade deficit bill. It's had to import more than it can export as most industries have closed due to an unstable operating environment. Angola's Department of Mineral Resources and Petroleum says under the new administration of President Jalorenko, the country has been one of the world's leading producers of oil and gas. This as the Angola Oil and Gas Conference and Exhibition takes place this week in Luanda. It aims to bring investors who can increase the competitiveness in the oil market and use the Angolan oil industry as the main catalyst for boosting the economy in general. The event gathers key governmental officials and C-level executives together for keynote presentations, moderated panel discussions and exhibition and network gatherings. African ministers of petroleum will attend the event, as well as international investors and decision makers. South Africa's ruling ANC says it expects Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Godan to ensure the continued stability and operation of state-owned enterprises. This follows the shock resignation of two CEOs in a short period of time. South African Airways CEO Vuyani Jahana resigned from the carrier over the weekend, citing uncertainty about funding and slow decision-making processes that were delaying the airline's turnaround strategy. 
His resignation comes just more than a week after state-owned power utility Eskom CEO Pakamani Khadebe announced his resignation. ANC spokesperson Pule Mabe says the governing party has deployed capable cadres to the executive, tasked with ensuring the effective functioning of a capable state. That capability would also be expressed through the kind of men and women that we've deployed. We've got a Ministry of Public Enterprise led by Minister Pravin Godan. It is our expectation that he is going to rise to attend to matters that might have an effect on the stability and the continued operations of SAA. We can't really formulate an opinion at this stage. Safe to say that there is a leadership both at the board level and even in the ministry seized with these matters. Kenya has released new banknotes in a bid to end fraud and illicit currency flows. President Uhuru Kenyatta's vowed to stamp out corruption, but critics say he's failed to take meaningful action. The BBC's Mary Harper reports. Gone are the pictures of Kenya's presidents, replaced with images of the wildlife for which the country is so famous. Elephants, giraffe, lions, rhino and buffalo. The new banknotes also feature themes, including green energy, governance and tourism. The governor of Kenya's central bank, Patrick Ndurogi, said the old 1,000-shilling note would be phased out by the end of October, while smaller denominations would remain in circulation. He said this would help to end money laundering and the printing of counterfeit notes. A survey by the United States National Association for Business Economics has predicted that growth in the country's economy would slow in 2019, with the odds of a recession increasing sharply. The poll shows that 90% of the respondents had put their growth forecasts due to U.S. trade policy. Panelists now expect GDP growth to fall to 2.6% this year and 2.1% by next year, down from 2.9% at the end of 2018. The U.S. dollars trading at 357.66 Nigerian Naira, 10.75 Botswana Pula, at 99.76 Kenyan Shilling, and at 13.16 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.91 Brazilian Hale, 65.42 Russian Ruble, 69.39 Indian Rupee, 6.93 Chinese Yuan, and at 14.54 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 78 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,311 and platinum at $801 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $61.32 a barrel. For Channel African News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Our sports updates up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update, we begin with football news. South Africa's national women's football team, Banyana Banyana head coach Desi Ellis, was left disappointed after his side suffered a 7-2 defeat to Norway in the final match of preparation for the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup. The clash took place on Sunday in Amia in France. South Africa kick-starts their World Cup campaign with another difficult assignment against Spain on the 8th of June in Le Havre. 
Norway led 5-0 at the break and Banyana Banyana tried to claw back their way into contention as they managed to score two goals, but the damage was already done. And the South African national men's football team, Bafana Bafana Kosafa Cup coach David Nodwane says lack of experience let them down in the loss against Botswana in the quarterfinals. South Africa will have to settle for a place in the plate section following a 5-4 loss on penalties to Botswana. Nodwane is using an under-23 side to compete against senior national teams from the southern region to prepare the team for the under-23 Africa Cup of Nations. Nodwane says they considered two soft goals from set pieces sometimes yes you know the result is not what we want you know the result is not what um, uh, is expected of us but i think the lessons in terms of where we are is indicated with this group of boys trying to prepare for zimbabwe and i think uh, 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 games like this are more important to prepare our boys going forward into senior competition you know we played lesotho by the way senior team in our preparation for angola on to rugby news, the Springbok Sevens team ended their run in this year's HSBC World Sevens Series with a third place in the Paris Sevens. Disappointing in the outcome even though they beat USA 24-7 in a bronze medal match-up. In a year where change was inevitable, the Blitzbox failed once again when it mattered most, being dominated by New Zealand 33-7 in the semi-final to once again promise so much but end in defeat after looking good in their opening four matches of the tournament. So it was left to bronze as Fiji beat New Zealand 35-24 in the cup final to take the Paris crown and underline their status as 2018-2019 World Series champions. The bronze match was a good one for the future of box sevens as Muller de Plessis scored a brace and Ryan Oosthuizen also crossed for the team with Phillips Neyman adding the extra try to seal the win. In cricket news, the South African national cricket team Protea slumped to one of their worst starts at the ICC Cricket World Cup event following their second consecutive loss by 21 runs to Bangladesh last night at the Oval. Captain Faf Duplessis men looked a shadow of themselves in an identical performance with a crushing opening defeat at the hands of the tournament favourites England last Friday. Former South Africa's A, South Africa's Under-19 and Bishop Highfield Lions coach Jeffrey Doyana believes that South Africa have left a lot of to be desired with a bet in their opening two outings. Yeah, I mean, the, the start was quite tough to lose against England, who I believe are the favourites. They are, they are playing at home as well. That, that first loss, disappointing in terms of the betting. And I'm quite happy to see that Fife is betting at three. It's a position that I believe he should bet in. The big reliance as well on a Quinton de Kock, it's something that's really, really going to cost us. Because in the last 18 months, I mean, Quinton has been superb. Yes, Hashim Amla didn't play like this second game, the, the first game as well. T- to be bounced out like that was something really, really quite disappointing as well. I think the top six has to take responsibility because from here um, it is going to be tough because these are the top teams. I mean, teams like Australia are playing some good cricket. India is a good side. Uh, The Kiwis as well, you know, playing some good cricket. And finally, with tennis news, South Africa's world number six women's wheelchair tennis ace, Khutazo Munjani, returns to Roland Garros. Munjani will be amongst the star-studded lineup at the second Grand Slam of the year, which starts from the 6th to the 8th of June in Roland Garros, Paris. The ever-positive Munjani is confident she will go a step further at this year's event as she prepares for an assault at the clay court tournament. That's the Sport News this hour. 
Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, UN Women hail South Africa's new gender balanced cabinet and concerns over worsening healthcare situation in Gaza. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzura Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327, or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za is Holy Ray with a song titled Deeper.